Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In a spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 108 of History of the Marine Corps, Defense of the Philippines, Part 4. The Battle of Bataan in Corregidor comes to an end during this episode. This one got me a little. The final days of Corregidor were brutal, and some of the stories shared during this episode are emotional. True bravery and dedication from those who were fighting on the front lines. This episode discusses the island's surrender, some heroic stories from Marines on Corregidor, and statistics about the battle. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Master Gunnery Sergeant John Mercurio commanded the defensive line from Calvary to North Points. Quote, I've got word that landing boats will attempt a landing. They'll be coming in here someplace. Fix bayonets. Unquote. He ordered Private First Class James D. Nixon to go to the cliff overlooking the beach and report on the location of the Japanese. Once he was in position, Nixon saw Japanese troops coming ashore and they were only 30 feet away. Heavy fire targeted the incoming enemy as they climbed the steep cliffs, and Marines tossed Molotov cocktails down on the landing craft. The Japanese used the cover of darkness to bypass many Marine positions. Without warning, the survivors of the 2nd Platoon found themselves surrounded by the enemy. Corporal Franklin saw a grenade land in the trail in front of him, which exploded and knocked him to the ground with a head wound. Still shocked by the blast, he hazily saw a Japanese soldier charging with a fixed bayonet. Franklin said to himself, quote, I ain't going this fucking way, unquote. He jumped up to engage the enemy with his own bayonet. Franklin was stabbed in the chest, but he succeeded in killing the Japanese soldier. He ran down the trail passed another enemy soldier, who shot Franklin in the leg, but the Marine continued moving until he reached Malinta Tunnel. The first wave of Japanese troops landed in 15 minutes, and the remaining landing crafts headed back to the bay to pick up more men. Enemy soldiers on shore fired a flare to signal their success. Japan's 2nd Battalion didn't have the same luck. They landed east of their target, where defensive positions remained intact and fully staffed. The night landing confused the guides on the boat, and they couldn't recognize landmarks established for the landing zone. 
A strong current also drifted the ships and caused them to miss their mark. Eight out of their ten landing crafts were destroyed. Troops that made it to shore were stranded on an open beach and were annihilated. Most officers were killed, and the remaining survivors were picked off with hand grenades and machine guns. Private First Class David Johnson remembered a sailor named Hamilton firing a twin 50 caliber machine gun up and down the beach. Quote, like shooting ducks in a rain barrel, the Japanese would run up and down the beach, and each time there would be less men in the charges. Finally, they swam into the surf and hid behind boulders. Unquote. Captain Noel Castle commanded Delta Company, and he was sent to the initial landing site. Castle was known for carrying his two pearl-handed 45 caliber pistols. He ordered Sergeant Matthew Monk, with 15 drivers and cooks, to take charge of an abandoned beach defense position and secure his left flank. He told Monk, quote, Do the best you can. Keep the Japanese out of the tunnel. Unquote. Castle then assembled his men for a counterattack. At 0140, the two forces met in one of the bloodiest battles on the island. The two forces were face to face. Castle found an abandoned 30 caliber machine gun and put it in working order under heavy enemy fire. As soon as it was up and running, he engaged with Japanese troops, which caused them to dive for cover. The Marines were able to successfully stop the Japanese, but it came at a substantial cost. Castle was hit by machine gun fire and killed. First Sergeant Noble Wells gathered 25 to 30 Marines along the North Road to stop the enemy from using that path. Corporal Howard Jordan and John Fraser were posted in the communication trench. Jordan heard a noise and asked, Who goes there? A voice responded, Quote, me Filipino, got hurt foot, unquote. Both Marines opened fire and dropped the unknown man. It turned out he was a Japanese soldier. Corporal Fraser later remarked that the soldier, quote, didn't have to worry about that foot anymore, unquote. A lack of wire communication on Corregidor caused substantial problems for the officers calling the shots on the island. When the sun started to rise, the only way Beecher and Howard received word of the battle was by runners. This was a dangerous role. It was a thousand-yard trek from the front lines to the command post in Malinta Hill. Many who were assigned to the task were targeted by the enemy and never made it to their destination. To give you an idea of how dangerous this path was, when Oscar Company of the Regimental Reserves were called in and they headed towards the front lines, they received heavy rifle and machine gun fire. Sergeant Carl Holloway remembered, quote, We had been so accustomed to heavy artillery fire and bombs for so many months that the bullets kicking up dust around our feet seemed at times almost like raindrops hitting the dust, unquote. Japanese fire essentially wiped out two platoons from the company. The third platoon had only six Marines left, and the second, had only five. The Marines made the best of what they had left. When the 3rd platoon reached the front lines, the remaining six Marines were sent to the left to extend the flank. The five Marines from the 2nd platoon joined them. 
With the reserve units deployed, Marines had no choice but to fight, knowing that backup wasn't coming. When the last reserve force was fighting off the enemy, additional Japanese landing barges started to pull up to the beaches. Private First Class Robert McKechnie carried a Lewis gun to an overlook and personally disabled two barges, leaving them drifting aimlessly. On the Marines' right flank, Sergeant Major John Sweeney and Sergeant Haskin climbed a water tower. There was a Japanese machine gun set up below the tower that was stopping the Marines from advancing. Sergeant Major Sweeney and Sergeant Haskin threw grenades at the machine guns. They did this knowing that they wouldn't make it out alive. Sweeney stated, quote, Well, this is it. We've been in the Marine Corps for 15 years, and this is what we've been waiting for. If I don't see you, that's the way it is. Unquote. Haskin was killed when he tried to get more grenades to the water tower. Sweeney was taken out as well. Quartermaster Clerk Frank Ferguson was a platoon leader and knew these two Marines for some time. After the battle, he delivered a simple eulogy, quote, They were very close friends in life, and it was most fitting that they should go out together, unquote. In another example, two sailors, Signalman First Class Morris Havey and Signalman First Class Frank Bigelow, manned twin 50 caliber machine guns overlooking the beach. Havey was hit by Japanese fire and tried to stagger back to Malinta Hill. He made it a hundred yards before he was killed by seven machine gun bullets across his chest. At 0615, Major Williams ordered his battalion to charge the enemy. When the command came down the line, Marines and sailors attacked with fixed bayonets, quote, yelling and screaming, cursing and howling, unquote. Major Williams was the epitome of a Marine officer. He fought beside his Marines and constantly checked on their welfare during the fight. Captain Brooke admired the man. Quote, he was everywhere along the line, organizing and directing our attack, always in the thick of it, seeming to bear a charmed life. I have heard men say he was the bravest man they ever saw. Unquote. The enemy kept coming, but the Marines put up one hell of a fight. A Japanese lieutenant described his experience fighting the Marines. Quote, At the appointed time, the big guns on Bataan went to work, but we were not ready for the attack. Making the best of a bad job, however, we took our adjacent positions and moved shoreward. But before we got there, we were detected and became the impotent targets of a merciless barrage at close range. American high-powered machine guns poured a stream of bullets on us from all directions. Rifle fire augmented that hail of death. Our men who were huddled in the center of the boats were all either killed or wounded. Those who clung on the edges of the ship's sides were hit by shells that pierced the steel plating. The boat had already sprung several leaks when we finally came within landing distance of Corregidor. Desperately, I gave the signal and led the charge against the shore defenses. I don't remember how many men responded. I know I heard only a small chorus in that mad dash for the shore. Many were drowned as they dropped into the water, mortally wounded. 
Many were killed outright. As I thrashed through the water, wildly, desperately, endeavoring somehow to reach that shore, the phosphorus sent a thousand telltale sparks of light scattering in all directions. Bullets whistled round me, splashing into the water. If it had not been for the fact that it was the dark hour before the dawn, pitch black, I doubt if any of us would be alive today to tell the story. Unquote. He's probably right in his assumption. It might have been a different story if the enemy had attacked during the day. Japanese riflemen only carried 120 rounds of ammunition and two hand grenades. Machine gunners carried 720 rounds of ammunition and three to six grenades. The mortar section had 36 heavy grenades and three light grenades. Any additional ammunition crates were dumped overboard during the panic, and only a few boxes could be recovered. By morning, most of the enemy's ammunition was gone, and Japanese soldiers relied on bayonets for the rest of the battle. Some even used rocks as weapons and threw them at the Marines. Marine resistance was phenomenal considering the circumstances. General Homa recounted one year after the fight, quote, If the enemy had stood their ground 12 hours longer, events might not have transpired as smoothly as they did, unquote. Only three Japanese tanks made it to shore. The rest were lost 50 yards offshore while attempting to land the 2nd Battalion. The tanks had a hell of a time getting started. The steep cliffs and debris on the beaches caused them to be left behind as the infantry advanced. It took the tank crews and engineers an hour to get off the coast, and it wouldn't be until dawn that they were able to cut a road through the cliffs of Calvary Beach. By 0830, all three tanks were on the roads and began to advance. At 10 a.m., Colonel Howard reported their arrival to General Wainwright. Wainwright later confirmed that the tanks were the straw that broke the camel's back in his decision to surrender. Quote, It was the terror vested in a tank that was the deciding factor. I thought of the havoc that even one of these beasts could wreak if it nosed into the tunnel, where lay our helpless wounded and their brave nurses. Unquote. At 11.30, Major Williams visited Colonel Howard in Malinta Hill. He informed him that his men could no longer maintain the line. Howard reported to Williams that Wainwright decided to surrender at noon and ordered him to hold the Japanese until then. At 1200, Captain Clark, a field musician, and Lieutenant Manning, an interpreter, emerged from Malinta Hill, carrying a white flag. Williams ordered his men to withdraw to the tunnel and turn in their weapons. Marines were ordered to destroy all weapons larger than a 45 caliber. Colonel Curtis ordered Captain Robert Moore to burn the 4th Marine's regimental and national colors. Moore returned with tears in his eyes and confirmed that he had completed the task. Colonel Howard placed his face into his hands and wept, saying, quote, My God, and I had to be the first Marine officer ever to surrender a regiment. Unquote. Marines all over the island took the news hard. A runner reached a group of Marines at James Ravine and told them, quote, We're throwing in the towel. Destroy all guns. Unquote. 
There was a Marine there that was so upset about the news that he tried to shoot the messenger, but he was wrestled to the ground by other Marines. Three Marines from the 3rd Battalion flat out refused to surrender. They boarded a small boat and headed out into the bay. Japanese troops were given direct orders to not fire if the Marines surrendered. When Clark approached the enemy, he was taken to the senior Japanese officer, who contacted Bataan and arranged a parlay with General Homa. When General Wainwright emerged from Malinta Hill, he saw dead and dying men everywhere. But even though the U.S. surrendered, Japanese artillery continued their bombardment. 88 tons of bombs were dropped that day, most after the capitulation. Wainwright eventually surrendered every island under his command. There's a pretty big range in the number of Japanese troops killed during Corregidor. The figure changes depending on who you ask. Japanese officers commenting on the fall of the Philippines stated that the total number of casualties was 903. However, many American battle survivors heard from Japanese soldiers in prison camps that the number was closer to 4,000 casualties. The 4th Marines on Corregidor were made up of dozens of different units, so the losses are also unknown. However, the losses of actual Marines assigned to the 4th are known. Marine casualties in the defense of the Philippines totaled 310 killed in action, 5 who died of wounds, 357 who were wounded in action, and 6 who are missing in action, and presumed dead. There were two naval medical personnel assigned to Marine units who were wounded in action as well. All survivors left on Corregidor were taken as prisoner. 474 of them would later die in captivity. 239 of them were Marines, and 28 were naval medical personnel. During the 4th Marine defense of Corregidor, U.S. and Philippine troops on Bataan suffered countless atrocities during the infamous Bataan Death March. The Battle of Bataan was one of the most significant events of World War II in the Pacific for the United States. After Major General Edward King, the commander of the Luzon Force at Bataan, surrendered on April 9th, more than 75,000 U.S. troops and Filipino allies were taken prisoner by Japan. American and Filipino soldiers fought fiercely against the invading Japanese army during this time. Their resistance was ferocious, fighting for three months in the sweltering jungle heat, despite being poorly equipped and suffering from disease and malnutrition. Ultimately, the Japanese emerged victorious, but the Battle of Bataan symbolized the courage and the tragedy of war. This battle had far-reaching consequences. The loss of the Philippines was a severe setback for the Allies, allowing the Japanese to establish a foothold in the Pacific. The battle also highlighted the challenges of fighting a war in the tropics and the importance of logistics and supply lines. It underscored the brutal realities of war and the sacrifices made by soldiers in the face of overwhelming odds. Filipino and U.S. forces fought for months without food, medicine, ammunition, and hope. Because of the poor quality of their diet, many suffered from night blindness and a variety of jungle illnesses, including malaria, dengue, dysentery, and hookworm. 
It's been estimated that over 70% of the men in Bataan suffered from malaria due to inadequate medical supplies. Although Japan established blockades to cut off resources, they did not anticipate the toll it would take on Bataan's defenders, nor the enormous number of prisoners they would encounter. This lack of foresight ultimately resulted in the infamous Bataan Death March. Most prisoners surrendered on the southern tip of the Bataan Peninsula. Depending upon where the men were captured, they either waited in temporary camps or were immediately moved to concentration points. Japanese troops robbed prisoners of their belongings, beat them, and bayoneted some captives. On one occasion, someone from Yusefi's motor pool and four others were beheaded when a Japanese soldier found occupation money on them. A handful of Marines were forced to make the arduous march across Bataan. Staff Sergeant Thomas R. Hicks, a field clerk with the 4th, recorded the events. He counted six officers and 71 enlisted, including Navy medical personnel, who were taken as prisoners. Most Devil Dogs were defending Corregidor Island, which did not surrender with Bataan. Due to the enormous number of prisoners, they were split up and sent to multiple camps. The early wave of prisoners were sent to Camp O'Donnell, or Camp O'Death, as the POWs dubbed it, because of the high death rate. One out of every six Americans who entered Camp O'Donnell died. 1,547 Americans and over 26,000 Filipinos died during the 71 days the camp existed. Japan ultimately ordered the camp to close on May 16, 1942, due to the high death rate. Those who were not taken to Camp O'Donnell were sorted into groups of 100 and forced to march 65 miles to San Fernando. The trip took 11 days. In addition to being in horrible physical shape, Japanese guards beat and abused prisoners as they marched. When they arrived in San Fernando, the prisoners were forced into tightly packed boxcars so the men couldn't sit down. During the day, the sides of the boxcars were too hot to touch, so prisoners couldn't lean on the siding either. When the train arrived at Capus, the prisoners were forced to march another nine miles to camp. Japanese troops didn't know how to handle a large number of deaths. They initially wanted to cremate any bodies, but U.S. chaplains pleaded with their captors to bury the dead instead. Japan agreed, and a cemetery was constructed outside of the camp. Japan assigned prisoners to work details, clear bomb damage, load ships, dig mass graves, and work on farm plots. Many times men would not return from the working parties, having died. They were buried near the location of their death rather than in the camp cemeteries. By the end of May 1942, the death rate for American prisoners was 44 per day. The height was on May 29th, with 50 dead U.S. prisoners. Philippine deaths were substantially higher. While this was going on, Marines were still fighting on Corregidor. The Marines faced a similar fate when the island finally surrendered to Japan. Prisoners were forced to clear debris for two weeks before leaving the island. The prisoners on Corregidor were treated 
a little more humanely. They were allowed to keep their personal effects and traveled from Corregidor to Bilibid Prison, where they could purchase supplies. They were loaded into similar boxcars and headed to Cabanatuan, about 60 miles north of Manila. Cabanatuan Camp No. 1 was the largest camp for U.S. prisoners during World War II. It included a hospital area, but a U.S. Army physician stated, quote, the hospital served to only segregate the very ill from the less ill, unquote. Prisoners from Camp O'Donnell were transferred to Cabanatuan and the death rate skyrocketed. By the end of the year, 2,642 prisoners had died. It wasn't until December 15, 1942, that the camp had its first zero-death day. In 1942, Japan faced a severe labor shortage. Prime Minister General Hideki Tojo required prisoners to work as laborers in Japanese industries. He ordered all prisoners shipped to Japan in every available returning vessel. The conditions on these ships were so bad that they were nicknamed hell ships. Men aboard the hell ships suffered some of the worst casualties of the war. In addition to extreme heat, thirst, or hunger, Allied attacks were the cause of many losses. Of the 68,000 Allied prisoners of war who moved to industrial camps, over 22,000 of them died on hell ships. American deaths on these ships totaled more than 3,800. Corporal Ted R. Williams recounted a story of a Philippine woman who entered a school where he and other prisoners had temporarily stopped. She had baskets of bread, rice cakes, fresh fruit, and other foods, and she began handing supplies to the starving men. The Japanese captain in charge knocked her down and kicked her. She kept her tranquility, stood up, and continued handing out food. The Japanese officer did this two more times until he gave up and let her hand out the food. Williams wrote, quote, I shall never live down the shame of having less valor than that wonderful lady who risked beatings, humiliation, perhaps even death, to do what she could for those who had lost the battle. Her place in heaven is assured by the virtue of our respective prayers. Unquote. Thanks for listening. This week's audiobook is the Storm Before the Calm, America's Discord, The Coming Crisis of the 2020s, and The Triumph Beyond by George Friedman. The Storm Before the Calm covers his thoughts on where the United States is heading in the 2020s. His theory is that the United States goes through a couple of cycles. The institutional cycle happens every 80 years, and the socioeconomic cycle every 50 years. At the end of every cycle, the U.S. goes through turmoil before emerging with new foundations that push the country forward. In 2025, those two cycles will occur at the same time, which will have a profound effect on the United States. I found his conclusion interesting. It was certainly thought-provoking, but the part I really enjoyed about the book was how he broke down past U.S. events that led to many of our current problems. He broke it down Barney-style, as Marines say. Friedman is non-biased in his examination of events, which I appreciate. 
He talks about the good and bad former presidents have done, including Obama and Trump, and how their actions shape some of our current events. If you're on the fence about this book, check out the February 26, 2020 Off-the-Shelf podcast. George Friedman is interviewed, and he provides a good summary of his book. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying this podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.